Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher. Very happy to have as my guest, Brian Koppelman, who wrote some of my all-time favorite movies, including one movie that maybe ruined my life, which is called Rounders, about poker. (laughs) Brian, I have you completely to blame for that. You know, um... Makes me so happy to know that. <laughs> during during the year, well, I, I'm just gonna get right into it. During the year after Rounders came out, I played poker uh, every single night. So three, <laughs> 365 straight days from 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. And do you know where I played? Where'd you play? I, I played at the Mayfair Club. Oh no way! Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, which is where, of course. Rounders, you know, ostensibly it kind of takes place, or you based it on. I mean, yeah, the club that Fomka Jansen's character um, Ingrid Petra, was always that, was always working there. Right. The, in real life, it's it's Ingrid in the movie. It's Petra, but yes, that's exactly right. Ingrid uh, was definitely the inspiration for that character, and the Mayfair is that club, and then the VFW Hall is the one where Teddy KGB is, and. Uh, you know, I played in that club for years, and my partner, who I make movies with, David Levine, and I spent like a year basically researching, playing every night, writing down the things that we'd hear, um, and then used all that stuff when we went and, and wrote the movie. I still play in poker games that uh, and see Ingrid sometimes. Yeah, yeah. She um, last time I saw her, uh, um, uh, Murder Inc. Records was having a private game up in their offices, and she was dealing. Yeah, she'll do it at these chairs. Oh, yeah, I, I can't believe you played in that game, too. I, I've, uh, yeah, that was a great game. I, I'm loath to talk about those games now that, that go on with those guys because, uh, you know, well, it's I think Murder, Poker- It's called Murder, Inc. Records for a reason. <laughs> well, no, yeah, but that's, those are the night. They're such sweet guys, Irv and his brother, but the, uh, you know, like you, I believe people should be able to play poker anytime they want, anywhere that they want, but every every few years, I guess, People decide uh, that they should shut these games down 
so I, I never want to let people know really, you know, where they are. Um, as you know, the, the Mayfair Club got shut down a few years later. And one of my favorite things I, I've ever written is I wrote this thing in The Observer called Elegy for a Carpet Joint about when the Mayfair got shut down because I felt like something in the city died when they when they started shutting down those places where people could gather in the middle of the night, not hurt anybody else, and match wits against one another, you know? No, it was so great because it was very secure. I mean, you'd have to go through all sorts of locks and everything. Ingrid would let you in. You know, they, they were very trusting. It was almost like a little bit of a bank. And there was a great restaurant inside the club. Like, I love the food. Uh, Me too, man. It's also because we probably – you love the food, as did I, which probably had a lot to do with just the romance of it. I don't know. Do you ever read this essay by David Mamet? Um, called Pool Halls in one of Mamet's first books. He, he talks about this pool hall in Chicago called Benzinger's and how he would cut school and go play pool. And, and he would talk about the joy of, you know, the way a cigarette tasted if you would smoke it there when you're playing pool when you should be doing something else. And I think that had a lot to do with why the food tasted great because, you know, you're underground, you're playing poker. It's really uh, in the gray area of the law. So the plate of pasta that they bring you, I think it just tastes even better because it's got all the stuff added to it. Uh, you know, that's a really good way of putting it. Like there was this sort of um, kind of historical, almost film that had settled across the club. Like yes. you sort of felt a part of it. And, you know, at the time, I had um, been working very, very hard for years, and I had just sold my company when Rounders came out, and I realized I had had no fun for the past five years, and I had no friends. So <laughs> suddenly, I, it was, I lived on 23rd Street, so I would go over to 25th Street where the Mayfair Club was, or 24th, I forget. 24th, 24th, 24th. Yeah, and I would go down there, and suddenly, I had at least people pretending to be my friend cuz you're you're around a bunch of men basically who are all just telling jokes the whole night and I'd stay till, from 8 p.m. till 4 a.m. and of course they're all trying to lie and steal all your money or whatever or take all your money but it was just fun like everybody's just joking and having fun and playing a game and it was it was the it was like a great year for me yeah well it sounds like that's you're you lived kind of the thing that I lived a few years earlier which was I would, you know, going to this club and the, the same thing as you uh, at night and then you'd leave early in the morning either with uh, a gangster's roll in your pocket or knowing you had just lost. But 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 somehow uh, as you'd walk out four four thirty five in the morning and get into a gypsy cab and and, you know, or you just have to walk a block, but I would have to get a gypsy cab to head back uptown. So, I don't know, it's either good or bad, something just felt right in the world about a, a, that there was a place like that that existed in Manhattan and, and that, that I, got, I had gotten to a place in my life where I, I found it, uh, was uh, somehow had gained a, entree into it and could uh, consider myself a part of it. So I agree, and you know that's why Dave and I wrote the movie about that. And, and obviously, you know when I hear stories like from you, but also you know Chris Moneymaker started playing poker because of that movie, and Vanessa Selps did, and you know, all the poker pros. I had Phil Helmuth on my podcast. The moment uh, it'll be up in a couple of weeks, uh, and you know every one of those guys in some way inter intersected uh, with the movie, and it it had an impact um, on them and on their lives, which was like super satisfying for us, you know. Um, yeah, no, because I, 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 and I'm sure we know a lot of the people in common, but I mean, it was so great because, like I said, it was the it was it was the first time I, in a while I felt like I had friends outside of work, and we would even on the weekends 
We'd even, like, you know, take a car down to Atlantic City all together, or we'd go to Las Vegas. Like, I actually, like, would go places with these, pe- with these people. We would just try to take money from each other or from others. Well, yeah, I mean, that's funny when you, you know, um, when you say friends. I mean, yeah, you can make friends in there. But obviously, look, if I'm thinking about who you were then, you were some rich young guy who, uh, you know, you could wanted the companionship, wanted the... Uh, the friendship, and I'm betting I know how smart you are, so I'm sure you got good at poker. But uh, you know, it's a there's a learning curve, and I'm sure in the beginning you looked very tasty to those guys when you would walk in. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I couldn't believe um, the first, let's say, four or five times I was there. But really, I'll say the first thirty times. But yeah. um, it was like there was a vacuum cleaner on my money. So <laughs> yeah, that's the point. Yes, I mean, there's a, the first night I was there, I lost seven hundred and fifty bucks, and you know, uh, I remember. I, that's when I called Dave in the middle of the night, and I was like, "Oh, this is the thing we can write our movie about." But I did re- do remember that I uh, I got cleaned out. I mean, of course, I got cleaned out. That's just uh, the, you know, that's the price of admission in a way is is you have to be willing to go through being really bad at it, figuring out why. And for you know, smart guys, it's really hard when you feel like a sucker. Uh, but if you can if you can somehow muster the inner strength to like go back and go back and then ask questions and then yes. you know actually ask questions. Think about it. Read. I'm sure, like me, you must have read. I mean, I must have read 30 books at the oh, time yeah. to try to figure this out. I read every book. I got, you know, yep, me too. Super System, <sighs> and I would get the. It wasn't. It wasn't on TV then, so I would order like these obscure VH, blurry VHS tapes of like World Series of Poker games. You know, and in in part inspired by the well, scene that, where Matt yeah. Damon in, in Rounders is watching the World Series of Poker. Well, but that was because, yeah, we were doing that. But, I mean, this guy, John Schechter, who was always there, he had, he had given me. Schechter, uh, Schechter was, started the Source magazine. I know him very well. Yes, exactly right. Yeah, of course he did. And and so Schechter's still my good buddy. And he gave me that Johnny Chan tape. And, and uh, you know, that's what that's absolutely like, you know, what I was doing, too, was watching that stuff. And there was this one bookstore in Vegas you could order the books from. But, hey, James, the way you recommend books to people. So even though um, Sklansky's theory of poker may be slightly not state-of-the-art in terms of, like, the ultimate thinking about poker, I think that for all the stuff you talk about on your show, and, you know, I listen to your show every week, um, oh, and I listen, Alter- I listen to Ask Alter, I listen to Ask too, but, uh, you know, the Sklansky book, like, the fundamental theorem of poker, which is, you know, to make your opponent act in the exact opposite way from, from the way he'd act if he knew what was in your hand, and things like that – just as a as an approach to any sort of competitive endeavor that involves um, um, not perfect information, some missing information, it's an incredible book to read and and really useful. I think in all sorts of like negotiation and contests. I agree. I thought I always you know now there's these great books where you kind of see round you know um, hand by hand how a guy like Dan Negreanu might be thinking or whatever. But I thought yeah. uh, Sklansky's books were just very solid for just teaching the basics of you know pot. And, and like you said, this fundamental theorem of poker and so on. And, of course, it was then great to go to Las Vegas and actually play against Sklansky in these cash games. It was a lot of fun. So, but yeah, yeah, I only played was... against him once, but I agree, yes. Uh, and there was something really romantic about it in that old era because – uh, it, it, like anything else, you know, it was a world that had its own. It was an insular world with its own customs, its own language, its own semiotics, and so you had to sort of figure out that stuff to be a part of it. Now it's a lot easier to sort of, you know, dive into it. But it's still, to me, that's it, poker. Still a, a great, great 
uh, game. And um, yes, I'm sure you and I, Pete Olson, I'm sure we know tons of the same people who have been around these places. And do you play still? Do you ever play? No, because, you know, after I stopped, uh, I think I figured now if I were to start again, it would take me a good six months of solid work and training, maybe three hours a day to get to the level I was when I stopped. Yeah. And, you know, people are, are are at that level. So I, I know I would need to be good or I would be too frustrated. So I don't want to put that six months in. Yeah, it's very hard. I, I've recently, uh, for a variety of reasons, started to think about it again. And I've uh, played a few times. But I've been – but I'll tell you, the thing you can do now is because I'm sure – like you, I'm friends with a bunch of the best poker players in the world. I can get the quick – you know, I can jump it a little because I can get the sort of pretty quick tutorial. Yeah, I could probably do that as well. Uh, w- one of my closest friends has been, a- and he's been on this podcast actually. Elon Schwartz has been a top poker player, and uh, I could probably get get up to speed pretty quickly. But you know, you just move on. Like I'll tell you, w- w- one I of agree. the things that, that happened to me um, during that year, uh, my first daughter was born, <laughs> and sure. um, it it just I was praying to God that they would all be put out on like morphine or whatever by the time 8 p.m. started so I could get to the club (laughs) and so so finally like my my baby daughter is put out and and my wife who's now my ex-wife of course was was put to sleep and I get to the Mayfair and Ingrid specifically said I'm not letting you in here and I said no don't worry everyone's passed out now I could come in and it was the first time I ever played high low and of course I got a wheel and they served me a meal for free and it was just a great night but it was a oh, great night perfect. because of the poker and not because my daughter was born. Yeah, well, that's when you should probably think about stopping. Yeah. I that's, agree. That's, that's when you should probably decide that it's a wrap for a little while. Yeah. Uh, no question about it. But, but let's uh, no, go back sure. a little bit because it, you, you, it, it's fascinating that you wrote Rounders. You also wrote another movie later, much later, um, which is just, to me, one of my favorite movies. It's like It's like a poem made into a movie, which is Solitary Man. I thought it was a beautiful movie. Um, Thank you, man. You've you've had a great career in Hollywood. Uh, You you produced Ocean's 13. You've produced a whole bunch of other movies. But I want to reel back even further because it seems like you were never the type of guy to get a job. I mean, I don't think you ever had any kind of nine-to-five job. Well, no. Okay, so I I want to just one thing, which is, yes, Solitary Man, I wrote and directed with my partner, and I directed it, and I wrote it, and then – Ocean's 13, we wrote that movie. We didn't produce that movie. The producer of that movie is Jerry Weintraub, was this famous legendary producer. So we wrote Ocean's 13. Um, oh, okay. But, uh, you know, and you never want to – Jerry Weintraub's the last guy you want to take any credit from in the <laughs> whole world. He's, he's a guy who, you know, ran with Sinatra. So um, I did have jobs for a brief periods of time, but I would say that from a, a very young age, um, I knew that – I was able to see really quickly when organizations were um, bullshit or when the received wisdom was faulty or when the conventional path was actually really limited. And so there were times um, when I would uh, embrace those things anyway for some reason, you know, but I I did always know that um, that I had a different uh, a different sort of ideal road for, for me. And it was, because, you know, partially because I was not a good student when I was young. And, uh, hey, James, you still there? Yeah. Okay, good. Sorry, my my computer just, uh, I think my computer might have crashed, but as long as the phone is still working, I don't care. Yeah, we're um, still recording. Everything's good. Okay, good. So 
You know, when I was uh, when I was a kid, I had pretty bad ADHD and and I'm 48 years old, so it wasn't something that was uh really diagnosed then or recognized or that they'd figured out a way to remediate in any in any way. So I had the very typical sort of uh path for for someone like that which was you know, I would demonstrate a certain thing when they would test me for IQ or something else, but then the work I would do in school was really bad unless I was fascinated by the subject, and then I would do really well. And that whole sort of that, – that dichotomy was really rough and made me very quickly sort of think um, – uh, these supposed experts are basically imbeciles because they can't figure out how to help me learn the stuff I want to learn or they can't recognize when I'm trying and when I'm not. And some, I started working at a young age when I was 13 and 14 years old because my dad was in the music business, so I knew about the music business. I started managing bands and producing records and doing all this stuff, and I had enough of that stuff that I was able to get into a, a good college. Uh, you know, Maybe by, back then if I had read your stuff, I wouldn't have even bothered with college, but I went – I, I, so I went to Tufts, but while I was there, um, it was the same kind of thing. Whereas I was I was at Tufts and I was surviving it, and I could you know at college you can pick classes that are interesting to you, so it wasn't quite uh, as, as bad. But um, I was very interested in the divestment movement, uh, you know, and uh, which was at the time um, these schools endowments were invested in um, companies doing business with with South Africa and. We felt that that was the wrong, wrong because it was still uh, apartheid uh, South Africa. And so through organizing this boycott and these protests, I came across the singer-songwriter Tracy Chapman. And because I'd spent all these years around the music business and doing it myself, I was able to recognize that Tracy was – uh, this exceptional thing and began working with her. So how, I did, how did you, how did you recognize that? Like what were, I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of good singers out there. So what, what, what were the kind of the three things that stood out for you and said, wow, this is not just a good singer. This is a star. So that's a great question. And as you know, because you've had these kind of insights in, in, in life, sometimes those moments are really hard to deconstruct because you've, You've built up a series of references for yourself for a very long time. So I would say all the stuff I'd done leading up to it, you know, like I casually say I've been around the music business. So somebody could be raised around that um, and not have done all the stuff I, that I did, which was, you know, the, the, the sort of flip side of ADD, the really positive side of, of that. And, you know, ADD is way worse when you're young. But the, the flip side is that when you're, real, when you're interested in something, you have the ability to hyper-focus on it and kind of never get bored by that thing. Right. And so I knew every record, James, and every musician who played on every record and every producer and every word to all the songs – all across the spectrum, um, every kind of music, uh, not classical, but other than classical music. I knew singer-songwriters inside and out. I knew hard rock. And so I knew just, I, you know, I could still tell you the drummer and bass player for like every band or every record. And so I was set up to be able to make this kind of evaluation, one. Two, I had an incredibly open mind. You know, you're 19 years old, and if you're somebody who's always looking for greatness in every area – uh, so if you're somebody who, who uh, wants to find the next great book or the next great movie, you know, and that that thing of artistic discovery is just something that was hardwired in me for my whole life. It's still something that I spend a lot of time in, interested in. 
So I was ready. Also, Tracy walked out on that stage, and because what I didn't have were any preconceptions or, or prejudices about what could or couldn't work professionally, what I, I was interested in greatness. And she walked out, and she sang with power and authority. She was the most charismatic, one of the most charismatic people I'd ever seen. She had a voice uh, like an angel. But beyond all that, the songs were just like true and real and you could feel the authority in every word that she sang. You could feel the truth of her experience. And then they were presented in this poetically beautiful way. And they were melodically amazing. You could sing along to them if they're hearing them one time. Now, that said, my insight, and I've talked about this before um, a little bit, but uh, the great insight I got over those next couple of years was that all the people who bought into the conventional wisdom looked at her and they saw something very different from what I saw. They saw an African-American woman who wasn't playing R&B music. They saw a folk singer in a world that had recently turned to drum machines. Mm-hmm. They, they saw a, someone of questionable sexuality in, you know, in other words, it was un, uncertain sexuality from the outside in a world that marketed these things in a very specific way. They saw protests. They saw protests lyrics in a time that nobody did and they thought oh this can't ever be commercial I just saw the greatness and thought well of course it can be do you like the music well I love it they would say but my audience and I'd say why is your audience different than you why is what you feel different than what they're going to feel and I saw the gatekeepers who would say this like music executives oh yeah like all the music executives except for one Mm -hmm. would say it they would all come up to Tufts and they would see her. I remember, you know, a couple of them. I can tell you very specifically. They would come and see her perform. They would say to me, "Oh my God, can I meet her? God, I'm, 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 I haven't felt this way since." And they would, you know, Elvis Costello in '78. Can I please meet her? Sure, come meet her. They'd shake her hand, and um, I'd walk them to their car, and they'd turn to me and they'd say, "Now, now you understand, of course, I can't recommend that we sign her." Uh, and I would say, no, I don't understand. I don't understand at all. Uh, are you lying that you were moved? No, of course I was moved. I'm not a, I'm, I'm a feeling person. Uh, I've never seen anything like that in my life. And I'd say, well, then and they'd say, you're a kid. I mean, they would say the things like someone would say in a movie, you know. They'd say, you're a kid. You'll understand later. How could you get it? I know why you love this. Um, and then one guy, Bob Krasnow, who ran Electra Records at sort of its height, um, Recognized that she was great, and, and his theory about his record company then was that he didn't care if these things didn't break quickly. He built a company that had the best artists in each area. So we had like the Sugar Cubes and uh, Anita Baker, Metallica. It was like each pocket, 10,000 Maniacs, was like the best thing in its little area. And he felt like if I, if I curate this, I will have cornered a certain niche in the market. I, I was at a big marketing meeting there where he, ba- he basically said to me, uh, don't think this is going to be commercially successful. I'm just telling you it's worthy, and so over time she'll be successful. But, you know, uh, I knew because Tracy had fast car, and it was just very clear. But she didn't have fast car. In the defense of all the guys who passed and all the women who passed on her, she didn't have fast car, that song, when they all passed on her. But, but by the time we had the record and we're ready to record the record, then she did have that song. I remember she came to New York and played that song for me and this guy named David Kirschenbaum, and we were um, – pretty floored to and so, and to hear so it. you went up to her and said i'd love to represent you and she looked so like you said she had all these characteristics she was she was yes. uh, black protest protest lyrics you know uh obscure sexuality and she sees a jewish white guy from oh, yeah. Long island 
and she says, sure, right. I'd love for you to represent me. Like, how did that happen? No, I mean, no. That, yeah, right. No, I walked up to her and I said, uh, I'm here because we're doing this um, all-campus boycott of classes tomorrow to uh, fight, um, you know, to pro-divestment pro rally. And I said, but I have to tell you, Tracy, I've been around this my whole life, and you're so incredibly special. I never do this. And it was always very important to me, you know, to be an ind- I'm telling you this, James, to be, like, independent and not lean on my dad's connections to do this stuff and do it all myself. But I said to Tracy, look, um, I've done this. I've been managing bands since I'm 13, but I have to tell you, you're so special that I think I have to introduce you to my father, too, and that together we can really help you. And um, and by the way, because I was a bad student, when I then called – and she said no. She said, I'm not interested. I want to finish college. I fought, Two things happened. One, I followed her around for the next two years. So instead of being wow. in college, if Tracy was playing in New Hampshire at an all-women's club in a small town, I was the only guy in the place. Um, and I did it over and over and over again. I would try to enlist friends to come with me. Nobody would come. I would drive hundreds of miles. I didn't care because I knew I have to show her every day that I'm not going away, that I really believe in this and that I'll, I'm genuine and – and at the same time, I was trying to say to my dad, hey, you got to pay attention to this. I don't think I can do this by myself. I don't think she'll listen to me by myself. I was in awe of her. I was 19, and it was very difficult for me to actually engage with her as an equal. I didn't consider myself her equal. I considered her to be so superior to me in every way. Um, but eventually, I went to the Tufts radio station because I had learned that Tracy had um, – recorded songs there for copyright purposes, demos, and I had a friend of mine distract the disc jockey, and I stole the carts that were, that's what you call those tapes, carts, and I went in the back and I duplicated the carts, so then I had a cassette tape of her songs, and then I flew to New York so that I have a tape to play, and then once I played Talking About a Revolution for my father and one of his people, uh, they immediately were like, holy shit, why didn't you say so? And I was like, I've been saying so for six months. And uh, then I got them to come up. And it still took years to get her to be interested in this. Uh, so, and so then- Brian, this is, this is like so critical to the story. Like you skipped right to the music executive saying no. But the, really the, the story here is you finding this amazing talent and then her – it sounds like she said no to you like a hundred times in a row while you yeah, sacrificed yes. every aspect of your life to win her over and finally you did. Well, yeah, that is true. I mean that's definitely what happened for sure. But you know what? As you've been through this kind of thing, you know when you're – it didn't even – first of all, there was nothing I wanted to do more than be in a room where Tracy was singing. Like, you know, so yes, it was ridiculous when I would get like the derision I got from the, the guys that I hung out with or from my girlfriend or from people when I would say, you know, I'm going to go – I mean, you know, to wherever it was as far away as it was to go see Tracy again. But I didn't mind it. You know, when you're in a pursuit like that of some like where you just see – when you – the few times – and everybody has these few moments in their lives, I think, where – they see through the mate. They see through the matrix for a second, and then sometimes people will. Something has set them up to not believe in themselves and to walk away from that moment. And then sometimes things have set you up to say, "I know I did see it, so I have to pursue it." Yeah, and and so a lot of my life has been trying to recognize those moments when I've seen the matrix and and to 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 know, okay, I have, and so now I have to I have to continue on this path. But I have to say, dude, it's fun for me. Like that's it's all I, I and, and that's really that the heart of your question is I really from a young age knew I wanted to try to build a life where I was not 
um, miserable, where I would defy the Thoreau thing, you know, of the mass of all men lead lives of quiet desperation, where I would try my best to be engaged because the opposite of engagement, boredom, is the worst state for me. And I knew that for me that meant, by the way, I met, I met my wife at a very young age and I'm one of the lucky people who I found the right girl. And by the way, it took seven years for her to say yes. Then when she finally said yes, she moved in that night and we've been together for 23 years. And um, so I just was like, well, if I see things or find things that make sense to me in a certain way, um, I didn't even consider it like a, a sacrifice. Uh, I just considered it like, um, okay, this is how I'm going to get on my path. By the way, a lot of pain goes along with this stuff. And um, sure, you, you know, said, I was a, you got said no by Tracy a million times, then no by the music executives a million times. Right. Like it sounds like it was it's, all pain. I mean, there's a lot. I'm just going to say, you know, I, I went to law school at night because I wanted to get I read Morris D's book, A Season for Justice. And I thought I wanted to go be a civil rights lawyer. So I finished law school once I started. But I, I was at night doing that at night while working in the music business during the day. And the whole time, the truth is the lie. The one lie I told myself for the time I saw The Matrix and I didn't follow it was I really wanted to be a, a writer. I wanted to be living a life of a creative person. I want to be a filmmaker. And I did not have the ability to get that breakthrough till I was 30. So from, you know, like 20 three to 30, um, I was saying no to myself. You know, I was not able to break through to be the thing that I really wanted to be. And that was the only time, um, really that I didn't sort of find a way to follow what my passion and my dream was. And, but, but it might've been for the best because people who often who write in their twenties, they don't quite have the experience or the depth yet to really, you know, oh, sort of explore those depths. That's really interesting. Uh, it, it may be the case, but it doesn't. I think that, that it doesn't feel that way when you're when you're yes. a blocked writer. You know, when you know that you have this stuff you want to say and you can't find a way to give voice to it, it's a really unpleasant state to be in. Because I think that blocked people become toxic, and they become toxic to themselves and to the people around them. And so I I started to become more and more aware of that, which is what made me then finally feel like if you don't break through this, you're going to ruin all the stuff that you care about. You know, you're going to harm the people that you care about. You're going to, uh, you know, you're going to have to find other outlets. And so in, instead, um, that's how I, you know, then I, I decided, okay, I have to find a way to, to do this. And I think that, that's, a really, a that's a really valuable way to say it. Block people become toxic and you see it over and over again. Like people have to, you know, we only have one life. You have to avoid that toxicity because it would, it will kill you. Yeah, I really think that's true. I've noticed it um, all around, you know, and the, the the whatever block doesn't necessarily mean blocked as an artist or blocked as a writer. But but I, I think what it means is when when something starts to die in you, when you've told yourself a story, what Tony Robbins, I guess, would call like a limiting belief that you allow to sort of grow when you tell yourself a story that um, – that you can't be this thing that that secretly is the thing that burns the hottest in you. It turns on you somehow, and and you know we've all seen the, those people. I, that is where the Thoreau quote comes from, right? Is is this you know there is a defeatism that sometimes people become suffused with, and when 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 that happens, it's very I think it's very sad. Which is why I spend a lot of my time trying to help people not feel that way, and why I've tried to you know use myself as an example for that. Well, now, two stories from your 20s that I want to ask about. One is, sure. in between Tracy Chapman and Rounders, there's Eddie Murphy. Well, yeah, Eddie Murphy was even before. Eddie Murphy was before. That was uh, when I was in high school. You're and kidding. No, um, or just high school or like a – yeah, high school. I think like senior year of high school. Because maybe. Eddie Murphy was um, already pretty huge by then. 
He was, no, it was the year, it was before he'd made a movie and when he was a featured player on Saturday Night Live, not a full cast member. Okay. So um, it was, because it was in the, you know, those four years when Lorne wasn't on the show. And I think Lorne came back in 84 and I went to college in 84. So it would have had to have been before that. And um, it was, uh, maybe I was in 10th or 11th grade, but... (laughs) I snuck backstage at some local club. He was performing. He was a popular comedian, but I snuck backstage at a show he was playing because I managed the opening act who was a folk singer. And the folk singer was good, but he was bad casting. You know, he was a Jewish Long Island folk singer. And I, sadly for him, I wanted to go to Eddie Murphy's show. So I figured out a way to get him to be the opening act. But then he got booed off the stage because they just wanted to hear the jokes. And uh, Eddie was so great that I I snuck backstage and – met his manager and said, you know, Eddie should be making comedy records and then went home and I met Eddie then went home and I woke my dad and then the next day they I put them together, the manager and my father together and then they made all those those three comedy albums. And those were uh, those are the biggest comedy albums ever. They were really big comedy albums and I was really happy to have helped um my father in that way for sure. So, uh, so and I got to spend time with Eddie, which was a riot. Yeah, do you still, I mean, are you still, uh, well, obviously no. you're still involved in the comedy scene to some extent. Like I read on your blog, you, uh, um, I don't know how to say his next, his last name, Mike uh, Birbiglia. Mike Birbiglia, yeah, Birbiglia. Um, yeah, I mean, I still know a lot of comedians and I've done, st- I mean, that was part of, you know, part of this thing of when you pursue all this crazy stuff is when I was 40, when I was a blocked writer, uh, I did stand up. I, I got, but at 40, around 40, I was trying to write Solitary Man. And I'm so happy that you love that movie. It's my favorite one of our movies. And it's definitely the best reviewed of our movies. And when, um, I was trying to write Solitary Man. I got stuck again, and I, I was uh, because it was very personal. There were things I was trying to say, and uh, I don't know why or how, but I decided that doing stand-up comedy was maybe an answer. And so I did stand-up for a year and a half, and so I got reimmersed in that scene and made a bunch of friends who were comedians. Oh, that's great! Yeah, no, I I love the entire stand-up world. Like I used to go to the Aspen Comedy Festival. Uh, oh, awesome! I worked at HBO for a while. I've been uh, obsessed with stand-up comedy forever. Um, Me too. Me too. I mean, when I was a kid, so yeah, when I was a kid, I would hang out with, I'm sure you remember from the old comedy days, Alan Havey. He's still a really good friend of mine, and he's uh, was like one of the best comics in New York, and I would hang with him from like when I first moved to the city and was gosh, in the New York. I, I don't know who that is. How, how, how do you spell the last name? H-A-V-E-Y. Did you watch Mad Men this yes. last season? Yeah. He was Lou, Lou Avery, the boss, who, you know, uh, yeah. Don, Alan Havey. He's a great comedian but i was around him and then i've i've always yes i've always been around the the comedy scene in new york to in, in some way or another uh interesting yeah I've, I've had some comedians on this podcast we have we had uh jim norton uh, uh yes Marina franklin um i couldn't believe you and norton grew up together that killed me yeah and you know what's interesting there and which i which i spoke to jim about a little bit is that he was so far beyond everybody else in school in humor even like as a little kid and then now you you know he's still a great comedian obviously and has created a great career for himself but you know you you know you have to be really great to be um a professional stand-up comedian because he was orders of magnitude better than everyone else and we were all funny guys then but right you you that that's not enough that doesn't cut it no you have to i mean listen he is i mean if you were doing a fantasy draft, I mean, he would be in the first three rounds. He's a very important comedian, Jim. And yeah. and but yes, they're only. But if you think about it, there are only like f- six comedians at a time who could really sell out a big, a really big room. 
I mean, as even he was saying, he sells out bigger you know places now, but there aren't that many people who can sell out. You know, what Russell Peters can sell out, or what Dane Cook used to be able to sell out, or what Aziz can sell out. And you have to have some other things, some giant TV exposure. Right, right. So, so you know, another another story, and, I'm, and now I, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm getting the timelines right. But you mentioned that you lived. Um, in an apartment building where Philip Roth, the oh, obviously yeah, that's a hilarious yes, yes, I yeah, did. and and you were always nervous um, running into him because he might see what books you were reading because you were reading popular, I guess, genre related. I would read, but yeah, I was. Well, this is again. So no, this is right then when I was like, I'm not writing, you know, and I was a reading. I mean. Like you, I, I just read a ton of – I've always just read um, many, many books. And I would rotate then. Um, I would read you know, some piece of literature and then I would read some just popular right. novel. And But Philip Roth lived in my building and I was nervous that what if he saw me reading a crappy book? So one day I left a book at home and didn't bring it with me um, when I would take the subway to work because I was like, well, what if I see him in the elevator? And this is an old building with an elevator operator in it, um, a guy. And then this one day when I left the book and didn't bring it, um, I, the subway got stuck and I had nothing to read and there were no iPhones or anything back then. And I was like so mad at myself for being so intellectually insecure and for caring and for being such a loser that I cared. And also for having the bullshit self-importance to think that Philip Roth would give a shit. So the next time I was reading one of those shitty books, I almost left it. And I said, no, Brian, be uh, a grown-up. Take the book with you. And I get in the elevator and Philip Roth's standing there. And obviously he must have seen something on my face. Talk about a guy who'd be good at poker. And I tried to hide the book behind my leg. And Roth said, no, no, no. What do you got there? What is it? And I pulled it out. And he said, ah, yes, Mario Puzo, the Sicilian. And uh, it was a Mario Puzo book. And then I was like, yeah. And he goes, how did Mario acquit himself? And I said, oh, I, I like it. And then he looks at me and he says, I know you try to hide what you're reading from me. and You don't want me to see it. But he – and then he points to the elevator operator, Louie. He goes, but he is on my payroll and he tells me every day, I always know what you're reading. And then Roth stormed out of the elevator, leaving me to feel like a schmuck. That's funny. And, and you know, it's really true because uh, about um, – you know, like for instance, in the past two days, I just started uh, John Grisham's latest book, uh, Grey Mountain. and But I had yeah. just finished uh, Richard Wright's – uh, the outsider. So it just depends what day you catch me. I could be embarrassed, yeah, or really proud of what I'm reading. Oh, that's so funny. And of course, you should feel neither state. Right, James. exactly. Right. And it doesn't, I mean, just uh, who cares? Nobody should judge what you're reading. You're, you're going to pick up all sorts of stuff from any of it. And also, nobody in their own time ever knows what work is going to end up being considered the important work. So it's just nonsense. And it's that's all about external approval, which is like the whole battle in life is to feel authentic and comfortable in your skin. So who cares? Yeah. Well, but it's interesting, though, because all of this reading, pro again, this is what got you to age 30, being having the ability now to write rounders. And you say, you know, you, you, you it, it seems like, you know, so I went through your vines where you, 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 have, you have this excellent idea of you're going to give um, so Vine is the, the, the video service owned by Twitter which you, where you make six-second videos, and you have this whole series of six-second videos about screenwriting techniques. And, and one of your first ones, or maybe it's the first one, is that all screenwriting books and gurus are bullshit. Don't believe any of them. But what I get out of your Vines is essentially – and your Vines combined with your movies is uh, read as much as possible, write every day. And I still think you stick to the three-act structure. 
That's what you I know, get from I mean, your, your Well, I would say stuff. this. Solitary Man is a two-act, really, in the end. Solitary Man really doesn't have a third act. I, here's the thing. I always say, like, I, as I'm sure you do in everything you do, I always wish I were better at, at what I do, uh, as, as, as everybody does. And, um, yeah, listen, the three-act structure is not from gurus, right? That's from Poetics by Aristotle. So, yes, uh, the, the three – we are, we are um, I'm used to hearing stories that have a beginning, a middle, and an end and, that, and reach a crescendo and then have a denouement. That, that's, that stuff is sort of where maybe hardwired or we've been um, acculturated to it. But, but the main thing is that there are a lot of people who are selling a lot of bullshit about how to become proficient at writing screenplays uh, as though that should be sort of a career path. And I just think that those things all have a chilling effect on people. They think, oh, am I doing it wrong? Um, and so, yeah, I, for me, the things that were a miracle were uh, I read Awaken the Giant Within in my 20s, and I realized I had to dive deep and figure out what I wanted to be and then not be too scared to pursue it. And then I read The Artist's Way, and I did the morning pages. And those things combined with I, I practice transcendental meditation, so I, I meditate twice a day. And, like, those things – um, freed me a lot from worrying about all this external stuff. And I just think that if you're somebody who, who wants to express themselves creatively or wants to do it for your life, they're all the things that are – many of the things that are holding you back. It's not actually information. You can find the information. Hey, what's a properly formatted screenplay look like? Very easily. The hard thing is to turn off the voice telling you you suck. And it could be the voice of a teacher who hated you or it could be your own voice or your brother's voice. And so that's what I want to help people turn off is that voice, that voice that represents Philip Roth. Oh, I could never be as great as him, so why should I ever pick up a pen? And I just think if you can silence that voice for the first draft, that's great. I'll say the, the, the piece that people leave out is I, because yes, I talk about pursuing the dreams, but you rightly point out that it took me two years and I never stopped with Tracy or Rounders got rejected by a lot of uh, people at first. I've told the story many times, but you know, so for me, uh, uh, it's, you know, figure out what the dream thing is, dive deep and then just never stop working towards it. Don't well, well, and, and I want to stop get to, working towards it. I want to get to the rounders rejections because so so you were at rounders and by the way I don't know um, did you write it from scratch you didn't you didn't you weren't like um, taking an, another novel and then writing a screenplay on top of it you wrote it from scratch right Oh yeah Dave no David and I invented the whole thing of course yeah, yeah. a wholly original story yeah all original and made up again us. again great story and then I can't believe. You 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 went around to every agent and they all said no. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, I wrote about it at BrianKoppelman dot com, and uh, you can yeah you know, write about sort of all, all this stuff there. And I would just say that um, they all rejected it. They all made up these crazy reasons. And then the day after Harvey Weinstein bought it, all the same agents called us and they uh, said uh, sign with us and. I would I bet that back then you know you remember every rejection so keenly when you're doing this at the beginning and I had written it all down so I was able to say some guy called and would say oh I think it's brilliant and I'd say no 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 you said it was overwritten and he'd say well uh, no no that was my assistant who read it or some dumb reader or I only read the first two pages you know they they just lied it taught me everything I needed to know about um, you know supposed authorities and and what their real motive is I mean their motive is self interest and so. Uh, you can't ever take their view as a, a value on the thing's actual artistic merit. You have to just know that they haven't yet understood why there is the possibility of um, uh, some kind of utility for them in the thing. Now, now you, you talked about how do you um, 
uh, shut off that voice that says you suck. Because not only do you have to shut off that voice during the creative process, but you also yes. have to shut off that voice during the, the, the business process uh, when everybody else is telling you you suck. Well, yeah, it's very uh, it's very hard to do that, right? It's a, it's a it's a practice, isn't it, to figure that out? I mean, don't yes. you have to do that when you have an idea? I mean, I love the Every thing day. you talk about. I love the thing you talk about about the you know having the uh, ten ideas a day and making sure that you write that down. Uh, and because the practice of just doing that and of realizing that you're an endless bond of ideas is really uh, great and super empowering. And, and, so, and again, you probably get that from the fact that you have been reading so much and you do write every day. That gives you a certain confidence that uh, your voice doesn't suck, you know, no matter what people say. But don't you think you have to like re – I'll tell you for me, we all have periods where we don't feel impervious, right? We all have moments where we worry that those voices are correct or I think most of us have moments where we worry about that. Um, the thing is that if you can somehow put some kind of a – practice in that that um like for me it's writing in the morning pages and meditating and i take really long walks and if you can put some kind of practice in then you know you're getting the reps in so that oh i feel crappy okay i'm gonna meditate i'm gonna take a long walk oh i remember who i am now okay i remember what makes me feel good and then i'm a different person but now when you were writing solitary man you mentioned you were feeling a little uh stuck what i really was what got you past that um, well, I really think part of it was doing stand-up. I really, uh, I really do, um, because you know, facing that rejection was just like super potent. And and it's um, hard to start stand-up at the age of forty. Really hard, and I didn't do it in a Hollywood way. Like I didn't have anyone make calls for me or anything like that. I just showed up at open mics and took a comedy class, even which was crazy, you know. And at first, I didn't want anyone to know what I really did because by that time, I'd already made five movies or something like that. But I like did the whole thing, open mics, and and it was, um, you know, people always talk about humbling, and they, it's the opposite of what they mean. They uh, they don't know what that word really means, but it was that, and I it was a part of this practice of like reducing down and being willing to face this rejection and learning how to marshal my inner resources again. You know, that's almost a movie, like a guy who is um, blocked in some way and in order to avoid his own toxicity goes into stand-up, which is basically (laughs) a a world of mostly young people at these open mics. You you know, young people and shitty bars at open mics. And there you were at 40 trying trying to do it. That That strikes me as a story. Yes, no, I'm sure that it is, and I've I, I've written about it a little bit, and I'll write about it more. But I mean, all of this, and and you know, I only have a couple of minutes because I actually sure. have to do a thing. But I would say that I love your podcast, and I learn from it um, every week because I'm fascinated by the way business people think and people who sort of create new modes of doing anything. And then my podcast, which is called The Moment with Brian Koppelman, is I talk to people in all creative walks of life and would love to talk to you on there about you know how people who accomplish remarkable things process the inflection points like the big up or down moments and so for some reason this has been something that's um fascinated me since i was young you know how do you continue to move towards these breakthroughs and get to the next level of whatever you are and how do you not lie to yourself and how do you keep challenging yourself it's just been um, a thing that's like really animating and uh, f- from a very young age. And I love that there are so many people 
people now engaged in in trying to solve this stuff. Um, and I think you end up talking to a bunch of those people. So I'm wondering if you're are you going to write a book out of all this? Another book that's out of sort of like this collected wisdom that you're now gleaning. Yeah, I'm probably going to write a, a bunch of books because I've been learning. You know, it's basically like how I wrote to you today and I said, hey, are you available in an hour? Rather than getting into the whole scheduling mess of podcasts, uh, yes. just like anybody who interests me. I mean, uh, two hours ago, I spoke to Clayton Anderson, who um, is an, an astronaut. He's, he has spent 200 days in space. So anybody who interests me for any reason, I want to talk to them and find out how they right. did it. And, me too. That's and awesome. I learned so much. You must learn from your podcast. I do. That's one of my uh, – it's what I love about doing it. These are conversations I would have anyway. I always said one of the sort of un unintended consequences of getting to do what I do or what you do is it gives you this platform from which you can reach out and talk to almost yes. anybody. And I've always – as you have and I've heard you talk, I've always taken advantage of that. So if there's a writer I'm interested in, if there's uh, an, any anyone in any walk of uh, life, uh, I know that within a phone call or two or an email or two, I can get to them and try to have coffee or dinner because – there's an exchange there's something that we each have that that the other one might be interested in and i've so that's what led me to think oh this this would be a great thing to do on the podcast so that other people could benefit from these conversations that i'm having anyway yeah. uh so you know the, i i love doing that that's why i thought your pod when you wrote me whenever it was a couple months ago i thought like oh this is super cool um because you're doing the same kind of thing uh in a, in a really interesting way well so so brian i really appreciate you you spending the time I know people can find you at BrianKoppelman.com. It's K-O-P-P-E-L-M-A-N.com. Yeah, I have a couple of ways they can reach me. That way, they can email me at themomentbk at gmail.com. Just never email me a movie idea or a movie script. If you do, I'll delete it and I'll tweet out who you are and it'll be horrible for you. But send me anything else, any questions or anything like that. And I'm on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. And um, also, again, I have to recommend Solitary Man just in case you haven't seen it. Thank you. I really appreciate it, James. And I, I got to say, man, you're in New York and so am I. Let's, let's meet and have one of those coffees. Definitely. I'll talk to you soon, right. Brian. Thanks. Great. See ya. Bye. Right. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today.